You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Things have not gone well for Jesus' disciples for a long time. It seemed to go well earlier in the gospel when Jesus asked Peter and the others, who do you say that I am? Chapter 8. And Peter responded, you're the Messiah. And Jesus affirmed that. And the next moment, Peter and Jesus are in conflict. He begins to tell them how he's going to suffer. He's going to be handed over. He's going to die and be raised. And they don't have a a slot for that on their grid. They don't understand what he means. A, a, A dead Messiah is a false Messiah. Everybody knows that in the first century. What are they talking about? And so Peter pulls Jesus aside and begins to instruct him and says, you know, here's what it's really going to look like. Here's what we're going to do. And what does Jesus, how does Jesus respond? Get behind me, Satan. You're not thinking godly thoughts, you're thinking human thoughts. And so from that point, as Peter begins to sort of attempt to foist his agenda on Jesus, from that point to this point in chapter 14, it's all downhill for the disciples. Things get worse and worse and worse. Hey, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him. Hey, there's some people doing ministry over there and like there's some animosity and We're going to stop them. And Jesus responds, If they're working in my name, they won't soon speak evil of me. You just see how these guys are self-oriented and they keep people away from Jesus. And you've got to come through us to get to Him. And I've got His calendar and there's no room for you. Those are the kinds of attitudes and those are the kinds of things that the disciples just progressively give themselves to. Until we come to Mark 14, where their faithlessness has come to its worst possible expression. The striking thing is how their faithlessness stands in stark contrast to Jesus' faithfulness. He is tempted. He prays, let this cup pass from me. But he is resolved. Not my will, but yours be done. Their deep depravity, their self-centeredness amplifies the glory of Jesus' perfect, self-sacrificing, self-giving, holy love. Now the way Mark portrays the worst of the disciples, their darkness, invites us to consider ourselves, doesn't it? To put ourselves in their place, to ask, would I have behaved any differently? Because we like to think we would. We like to think we would have been there for Jesus, that we would have been willing to stick with Him in this place of conflict and agony and suffering betrayal, but if we're honest, we would have done the same thing. 
Who? I don't know it. Because the thing that takes Peter and the others to flee, to deny, to betray, is common to all humanity. The corruption of our human nature, the indwelling sin, we share that with them. All of us come into the world damaged goods, don't we? The brokenness they embody is common to every human being. And that's why Jesus did what he did. This is what makes the gospel good news. This is what makes the good news good. When our worst is most clear, Jesus goes to work. And the bottom line from Mark in chapter 14 is that our worst moments motivate Jesus' best gifts. Because right here in the midst of this just horrifyingly treacherous sin from the disciples, Jesus' beauty and loveliness and graciousness goes to work on their behalf. Our worst moments motivate His best gift, Himself, His grace, His intercession, His mediation between us and the Father. So let's talk about their worst moments. Certainly, we have Judas' worst moment. Immediately while it was still dark, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. He had been conspiring with the power players to betray Jesus. He had given them a sign, told them the one that I kiss is Jesus, arrest him. He gets painted as the bad guy, and he is. He's one of Jesus' close, I mean, he's part of the twelve. He is, he is deeply involved in the ministry. He was there for healings and exorcisms and teachings and, and all of these things. And yet, he betrayed Jesus. Some interpreters wonder if he didn't have uh, better motivations, not that he had this just spiteful antagonism towards Jesus, but maybe Judas thought if he, he could kind of launch the conflict and then Jesus would come into his own and, and take it to these guys. Because after all, remember, in the first century, a Messiah is the guy who cleans out the temple. Jesus has already flipped the tables and declared God's judgment on it. Maybe Judas is thinking, you know, this could... You know, it's time to kind of up the ante a little bit. Let's initiate the conflict. Hey, you guys, I'll tell you where he's going to be. And maybe he's expecting Jesus to follow Peter's example and start pulling out the swords and going after people. 
I don't know. It's a very interesting question. If that's what happened, it's a really good reminder to let Jesus call the shots and not take that into our own hands. Judas is worst. His treachery is magnified throughout this text. The crowd comes with him, swords and clubs. Judas kisses Jesus, calls him rabbi, and then the mob lays hands on the Lord. Peter clearly thinks that this is the crucial moment. Mark doesn't tell us that Peter's the guy with the sword, but John's gospel does, so we can kind of synthesize that a little bit. Pulls out his sword, takes off an ear of the chief priest's servant. John also tells us that Jesus heals the ear. And again, you just see how different, I mean, See what's going on here. With all of the time they've spent with Jesus, with all of the instruction that He's given them, they still don't get Him. They still think it's time to fight the battle. They still think it's time to draw the sword. They still think it's priests and power players and scribes versus Jesus and us. Part of their darkness, part of their sin, part of their worst is that they don't really know who the real enemy is, do they? They think the enemy is the temple establishment. In reality, the enemy is their own corrupt nature. Their darkness is on display so that we can see clearly, so that they can come to see clearly after the light of the death and resurrection of Jesus that the real enemy isn't the guy in the temple. The real enemy is the guy right here. In reality, the guy in the temple needs the atonement just like we do. Mark draws our attention in by portraying the disciples in a starkly negative light to help us see the real issue that Jesus has to deal with, the reason he goes to his death, the reason he is raised, the reason he is, the reason he is doing what he is doing is to deal with our worst. Not to look the other way from it, but to heal it by giving us his best, his life, his grace to transform. The way the disciples are portrayed, just as a side note, is a helpful affirmation of the trustworthiness of these accounts. If, uh, if you were Peter, you think you would want this story in this, in this text? If you were Peter and you were making all this up and the resurrection was just kind of a, hey, you know, let's try to keep the movement going and spread some rumors that he was raised and let's, because you know, some people say those sorts of things. If you were Peter, don't you think you'd say, you know, let's just take 66 through 72 and leave that out. 
But the disciples later on, as they transmit the account of Jesus, as, as, as word spreads, they are okay. Right? The guys who are in charge are okay with texts that describe their worst moments. Why? Because they finally come to experience Jesus' absolute best. They don't have to prop up false images of themselves to the world because their identity, their life, their wholeness doesn't come from what they did on that night after Gethsemane. It comes from Jesus. If we hide from our worst moments, right? if Peter's like, can we just not talk about that? Then it's much harder for Jesus to meet him with grace. This is one reason confession is so important. I'm just going to be honest with God. Here's what's going on. Denial, abandonment, whatever. And when you're honest with God, He can deal with your worst. He can bring His healing. He can restore. This betrayal, Peter's denial, doesn't hang over his head anymore. Jesus doesn't hold it against him. Jesus does not hold Peter's worst moments against him. Thanks be to God, he doesn't hold our worst moments against us either. He meets it with his grace. That time I lost my temper, said things I still regret. That time I hurt someone I love. That time I knew the right thing to do and still made the other choice. Our worst moments. Jesus not afraid from that, afraid of them. He runs to them with nail-scarred hands, offering his best. We see his best come into stark relief in the trial scene. It's a kangaroo court, isn't it? Whenever somebody's got to go look for somebody to bring up some charges, <laughs> you know they're fishing. They had no good charges to levy against him. We're told uh, the chief priests, the whole council, verse 55, were looking for testimony against Jesus to put him to death. They found none. They did find some people who would give false testimony, but it was conflicting. Uh, it's interesting that the false testimony Mark tells us is how it's about the temple being destroyed and Jesus is rebuilding it in three days, which is pointing forward to the resurrection, isn't it? Even in the midst of his trial, even in the midst of the events leading to his death, Mark reminds us that the resurrection is coming. So there, you can imagine this scene. All the power players are there, scribes, the, the lead high priest, the chief priests. I mean, this is a really serious gathering. Everyone who's anybody, who has any authority, who has any power, they're all there, and they're all after Jesus. And here he is at the center of this, being hit with false charges and people lying against him. And for most of the narrative, he's silent. 
I imagine most of us, right, when we find people, you know, I mean, surely someone said something about you sometime, right? Don't raise your hand, but right, I mean, surely somebody said something about you. That's what's happening here. And our, our, our immediate inclination is, i got to respond. i got to set the record straight. I'm not going to let them spread lies. Whether it's about us, or maybe it's about our spouse, or maybe it's about our friends. There's some information missing. That's not true. Like, those are our, like, we want to justify ourselves. We want to defend ourselves. Jesus offers us His best. He doesn't, he doesn't give any ground to those inclinations. He knows He's in the right. And He doesn't need to defend Himself. Because He's there to offer His best for those guys who are falsely accusing Him, isn't He? I mean, again and again and again. Mark says, you want to see the worst that humanity has to offer? Take a look at Judas. Take a look at Peter. Take a look at the chief priests and the high priests. Their God was standing right before them, and their response is to lie, to discredit, to malign, to slander him. And he quietly, as a lamb led to the slaughter, offers himself. Finally, he speaks. He speaks in response to a question. You can kind of sense the frustration of the high priest in verse 60. Then the high priest stood up before them and asked Jesus, have you no answer? You can just kind of, like this guy is feeling it. It's kind of, he thought he had a plan. He thought he had some, false, some witness, false witnesses. But it's kind of coming apart. They can't get it to land. And you can just kind of see him. He stands up. Have you no answer? And then we find out what the issue really is. We find out why they are after him. We find out what they're worried about with the next question. Are you the Messiah? The Son of the Blessed One. This guy is worried about someone trying to take his power. Because if Jesus is the Messiah, if he thinks he's about to become king of the Jews, then he is a direct threat to every one of the guys in the room with their power, their comfort, their ease. Are you the Messiah? Jesus wants out, all he's got to do is say, uh-uh, not me, man. But he's already prayed that prayer. Not my will, yours be done. And so he responds, offering his best. Yes, I am. And then he quotes two texts from the Old Testament, and they're important texts. He kind of takes a little bit from one, a little bit from the other, and wraps them together. One is Psalm 110. When he says, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, he's drawing on Psalm 110. And then he slides over to Daniel 7 with the next phrase, and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tears his clothes and says, why do we still need witnesses? You have heard his blasphemy. Now we need to unpack this a little bit. And as we unpack it, it will begin to help us see more clearly how Jesus is offering his best, not only then, but now. 
at this very moment as he reigns in heaven. So a lot of people come to this text, and we hear coming with the clouds of heaven, and we automatically think what? Jesus is coming back one day on the clouds, second coming. Hate to disappoint. This has absolutely nothing to do with the second coming. Do I have your attention? Let's take a look at Daniel 7. If you want to turn there, you can. If you just want to listen, it's okay. I'm going to start reading uh, in verse 9. Just before this, you've got uh, a variety of beasts coming up out of the sea. Uh, and Daniel sees this vision. You have four great beasts. They come out of the sea. One looks like a lion. One looks, uh, has eagle's wings. It, has lion, uh, it looks like a lion, and it has eagle's wings. So these are fierce things. We find out later that they represent the pagan nations that oppress the people of God. Right? The beasts represent people like Rome or the Persians or whoever happens to be taking it to the people of God at that moment. Then in verse 9, as these oppressive nations throw everything they've got against the people of God, Daniel says in verse 9, As I watched, thrones were set in place. And an ancient one, some texts say ancient of days, and we know who that is, right? Ancient of days is one of the names of God. An ancient one took his throne. Now where's the throne of God? God reigns in heaven. His clothing was as white as snow. The hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne were fiery flames. Its wheels were like burning fire. A stream of fire issued and flowed out from his presence. Thousand thousand served him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood attending him. So this is, this is God on his heavenly throne. And Daniel says, the court stood in judgment. The books were open. I watched then because of the noise, the arrogant words that the horn was speaking from one of the beasts. And I watched the beast was put to death, right? So what's the image? You've got God, you've got these pagan nations that oppress God's people, and then God sort of takes his throne. He's not just a king, he's also a judge. He sits in judgment over the nations that oppress his people. I watched, uh, as I watched, the beast was put to death, and he judges them. Right? So what's going on? This is like, pagan nations taking it to and oppressing the people of God, and God sits on His heavenly throne and kills the enemies of His people. Puts the beast to death. Pretty straightforward, right? Pretty clear. What happens next? Uh, the beast, its body was destroyed. It's given to be burned by fire. As for the rest of the beasts, pagan nations, their dominion was taken away. Okay? They lived a little bit longer. They didn't get put to death right away. Capital punishment like the other one. But their, their, their authority, their power was taken away. The question then becomes, who gets the authority? If Caesar gets taken off his throne or whoever you know, the pagan oppressor of the day is, right? kind of a flavor of a month thing for these folks. It, it happened <laughs> just time and again. They were constantly having people come and do battle and... and, and, and try to take over. John, Daniel says in verse 13, As I watched in the night visions, I saw one like a human being. Some translations say like a son of man. Here's where Jesus begins quoting, drawing on this text. 
I saw one like a, like a human being, one like a son of man, coming with the clouds of heaven. All right? Cool. We know about that. Coming with the clouds of heaven. At least we think we do. Here's the thing. In both Greek and in Hebrew, uh, the word translated coming means coming or going. <laughs> uh, if you were going somewhere, you would say the same word. Right? If you were coming somewhere, you would use the same word. Context is everything. You've got to kind of put the picture together from the context. So when Jesus quotes this text in the Greek version, coming to the, with the clouds of heaven, the question is, is he coming or going, and how do we know? Well, let's take a look and see if the text gives us any help. In the next sentence, we find out where he's coming to. I saw one like a human being, coming with the clouds of heaven. If you have your Bible open, you've already read the next line. He came to the Ancient of Days. Now, where is the Ancient of Days? Earth or heaven? Heaven. Where does he come to on the clouds? Heaven. Not earth. Anybody confused? <laughs> what's happening here? Like, what's going on? It's about the Messiah. It's about the one that God is choosing to be king over his people. What is happening in this text? I saw one like a human being coming with the clouds of heaven, and he came to the ancient one who is enthroned in heaven. So this is, Jesus says, this is about me. And he quotes it to the high priest. High priest says, are you the Messiah? He's like, yeah, let me talk to you about Daniel. You'll see the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest knows where he knows the implications. He's coming to heaven. Verse 14 to him was given dominion, glory, and kingship, that all peoples, all nations, all languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that shall not pass away, and his kingship is one that shall never be destroyed. This is not describing the second coming, it's describing the ascension. After Jesus is raised from the dead, he ascends to the throne of heaven. That's where he is now, and it is the place from where he reigns over all things. This is why the high priest was so angry and so furious, because he thought he was about to kill the guy who was threatening his power. And Jesus said, yeah, I am that guy. And guess what? Very soon, you will see me enthroned at God's right hand. And I will be given authority, dominion, glory, kingship, and all peoples, all nations, all languages shall serve me. Like That's what Jesus is saying to the high priest by quoting this text. Guess who's included in that group? The high priest. Blasphemy! Why do we need any more witnesses? Everyone has heard him. He thinks he's about to be enthroned at the right hand of God. Blasphemy. Still confused? We can do it all again if we need to. <laughs> no, no, please don't. Right? What I want you to see, right? Like the high priest doesn't expect, like if, if this, he, he doesn't, he's not worried about the second coming. Right? Remember, first century Jews do not think Messiah comes, Messiah dies, Messiah is raised, Messiah goes away for a couple thousand years and comes back later. Like nobody in the Gospel of Mark thinks like that. No one. Messiah's come. They 
take it to the temple leadership. They run those guys out of town or kill them, right? death or exile, and they take their jobs. That's the conflict. So when the high priest says to Jesus, uh, are you the Messiah? And Jesus quotes a psalm that says, I'll be sitting at the right hand of God. And all authority in the cosmos is going to be given to me. Then yeah, that gets you killed. That's why we're calling this series Unexpected Kingdom. Because nobody expected the kingdom of God to come through a cross. The chief priest didn't expect the kingdom of God to come through a cross. The high priest didn't expect the kingdom of God to come through a cross. Judas didn't expect the kingdom of God to come through a cross. Peter did not expect the kingdom of God to come through a cross. This is an unexpected Messiah. It is an unexpected king. And he offers us his absolute. This is his best. Right? This is the one who gave his life for you. The one who now reigns at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The one who has all dominion. Like we're getting ready to choose an elected officials. Let's remember, Jesus of Nazareth has all authority and power in heaven and on earth. And the folks that think they run this world have nothing that he does not give them. Nothing. It was true of the first century and it's true of the 21st century. Jesus reigns over all things. And I promised you that if we unpacked this, it would help us see how this is his best. The question comes, well, what's he up to up there? <laughs> or wherever it is, you know. Um, what does the ascension mean? If Jesus has been raised and ascended to the throne of heaven... Is he just hanging out? Is he just kind of looking over the banished? Like, what's going on? What's he up to? The New Testament helps us with that. So if you want to, we're doing a little more page flipping today than we normally do, but bear with me, because I, I want you to see how the Bible just takes all of these themes, Old Testament, New Testament, Gospels, letters, and ties them together. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 16, Jesus the great high priest. Since then we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens. That sounds a lot like Daniel, doesn't it? Son of man passing through to the throne. Since we have a great high priest who passed through the heavens, who has ascended to the throne of heaven, who reigns at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. Since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. The one who reigns in heaven knows what it feels like to be weak. He knows what that moment of temptation feels like. He knows what the depression feels like. He knows what the anxiety feels like. He knows what the loneliness feels like. In the garden, he knew what the loneliness feels like. I've talked to people that 2020 has been the loneliest year they have ever experienced in their lives. Shut up in their house, go out to get some groceries, they live by themselves. It's just this stunningly horrifying thing. 
The one who reigns in heaven knows. He is sympathetic. He knows how it feels to be betrayed, to be denied, to be abused. He knows how it feels physically, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who in every respect has been tested as we are, yet he was without sin. Let us therefore approach the throne of grace with boldness so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in every time of need. I wonder how many of us have been in a moment of need in the last few days. And I wonder whether our posture was, what do I do? How do I fix this? Or let me run to the throne of grace. Where the king of heaven, the one who has dominion over all nations, every tongue, every tribe, every language, has suffered and is sympathetic to my plea. What is Jesus doing right now? His body, and yes, there is a human body in heaven. Jesus didn't like kick his body out when he ascended. The one who reigns in heaven is fully God and fully human. Somebody like us, with bodies and brains, right, reigns on the throne of heaven right now. First time that hit me, it was very jarring. So just kind of roll with it. But this is what this is what this is what this is biblical Christianity. And from that place, he says, I want to give you my best. I want to give you my mercy. I want to give you help in your time of need. Our worst moments motivate his best gift. And the absolute best is the fact that one who's, the one whose name is above every name is not distant. He's not far away looking over going, man, tough for you guys. He is instead saying, I know what it's like. I've been there. I have suffered. I love you. I give myself to you. He's praying. He is interceding for you. That high priest had no idea what it means to be a high priest in the Gospels. Jesus does. He's the fulfillment of that. This is his best. He has ascended. Yes, he is coming back. And one day we will see him. But let's not miss the absolute glorious beauty of the deep reality that as the world is in it, doing its thing, Jesus is mysteriously, surprisingly, sovereignly, beautifully ruling over all things. And yes, some, like we may want to go, you know, Jesus, like, I know the Bible says you're in charge 2020. Right? <laughs> Sometimes I wonder. <laughs> but I wonder if we can see with the eyes of faith. Whatever's happening, Jesus isn't surprised. His authority isn't challenged. It's not called into question. And one day, it may be in the, from the new creation, hindsight will be 2020, and we'll be able to look back and say, I see clearly what you were up to. And I see how you have worked it for good. And I see how you've taken sufferings, and I see how that they are no comparison for the glory that you've now revealed. So I wonder... 
if we can let Jesus have our worst moments. The one in heaven wants to take them. The hands that he extends are marked by the scars of nails. Sometimes we hold on to them. I can't let you have that, Jesus. You won't love me if I'm honest about that. And he says, oh, what I do. And that love motivates me to pray for you, to intercede for you, to offer myself to you so that you can approach me. Jesus says, approach my throne. Come to my throne. If you were trying to go to the White House, there would be people with guns between you and the Oval Office. The king of everything says, come near. Approach me. You are not a threat to him. Your sin is not a threat to him. He offers his best. Today we're going to share Holy Communion. And this for us is a continual gift of God's grace reminding us and training us and reinforcing in us that Jesus gives his best. The bread and the cup, his body and his blood. And he does it not just despite our worst, but really because of it, doesn't he? Because we've sinned against him, he offers himself his best for us. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.